words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning. I'm really pleased to see so many of you here on a holiday weekend, and I'm even more pleased to tell a friend of mine who said that if his congregation on Sunday of Labor Day weekend was under 50 people, he would preach on Exodus and use a Popeye voice the entire time of talking about God saying, I am who I am. I really can't wait to see that get put up on Facebook. The story goes that someone once asked Gandhi about Christianity. And he replied something to the effect of, I like your Christ, but I dislike your Christianity. In the book where this quote loosely comes from, the great civil rights leader was asked how it would be possible to bring India to Christ. Gandhi replied, first, I would suggest that all you Christians live more like Jesus Christ. Second, I suggest that you practice Christianity without adulterating it. The anomalous situation is that most of us would be equally shocked to see Christianity doubted or put into practice. Third, I would suggest that you put more emphasis on love, for love is the soul and center of Christianity. Ouch. (laughs) That stings just a bit. And it's distressing that proclaimed followers of Christ could be painted with the same wide brush today as they were in the 1920s. I could attribute the divisiveness of Christians to many things. Positively, I could say that in this big tent religion, churches are localized to incorporate tradition, language, and customs, just like the churches to whom Paul wrote his letters. The truth is, is that while I can, I can come up with many more negative reasons as to why Christians are so deeply divided over and over and over. And the truth of the matter is contained in today's gospel lesson from Matthew. The book of Matthew could be divided into three volumes or three acts of a play, and today's lesson sets off the final act. Jesus has completed massive amounts of public ministry. He's preached and taught healed and set free thousands of people. He's really on a roll, and if you were in his public relations department, aka a disciple, you would be pretty excited about where all of this was heading. Fame and glory, and perhaps the hoped and prayed for revelation of the Messiah. The Gospel of Matthew is all about the Messiah. The Messiah in Jewish prophecy, sacred text, and tradition was a man of great power and glory who would come to finally throw off the shackles of oppression for the people of Israel. He would come brandishing a sword and laying waste to the enemies of God's chosen people. The Messiah would then rule as a king and establish a new world order. For a people constantly oppressed and enslaved, the people living in Jesus' time under the heel of the mighty Roman Empire, this vision of a Messiah looked pretty enticing. So if you were a disciple who knew Jesus was the Messiah, and you were ardently hoping that messianic salvation looked exactly like the previews you'd been seeing, you'd be disappointed beyond belief when Jesus began to show you that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering. 
at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Act 3, Scene 2, Enter Peter. Pulling Jesus aside, Peter says vehemently, God forbid it, Lord. This must never happen to you. And Jesus' reply raises the hair on the back of the neck. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but human things. I have to tell you that if the living word Jesus Christ said these things to me, I would drop into the fetal position and start sobbing. At least for a few days. Get behind me, Satan, are the exact words that Jesus uses earlier in Matthew when he is tempted in the desert. Jesus has fasted for 40 days when the devil visited him and tempted him first with food and safety. Then the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I imagine that both times Jesus said this, it was accompanied by a large sweeping back hand motion. His patience expired. We underestimate the power of the temptations presented to Jesus by both the devil and Peter. It is the seduction of power and strength and might and dominion. To be the Messiah that everybody wants Jesus to be. And Jesus' exasperation at these moments is extremely telling. The Bible doesn't say, Jesus shook his head slightly and heaved a great sigh dismayed that people were still questioning the Son of God. No, Jesus' exasperation shows instead a realization that the most seductive temptation any human can undergo is power and dominion over one another. What Peter is waiting to see, what he's been conditioned to expect and preparing himself for, is to see Jesus, the Messiah, coming with flames and swords and fury to establish the chosen people at the top of the heap. Peter wants the Messiah to flip their current status on their head so that they become the rulers. So when Jesus begins to show his disciples that he must go to the holiest city, be subjected to suffering by the religious authorities, instead of kicking in the door and taking over, than to be killed when he should be ruling in glory. I doubt the disciples even heard him speak of the resurrection. The resurrection. Sure, we, like the disciples, can imagine the power dynamics of a nation's capital, the power of established authorities against perceived threats, and the killing of the innocent. We can see this too, and that's why Jesus' description of what will happen to him probably broke their hearts. The first stage of grief is denial. The second is anger, and the third is bargaining. And in two sentences, Peter, I think, manages to go through all three. Imagine that moment for Peter when Jesus spoke about what was to come. Imagine what it would be like 
to hear something that was so wildly preposterous until you were shocked into its truth. A natural disaster. Genocide. A diagnosis. Peter's eyes flare, and the cold dread that he cannot unhear that this will happen sets in, and he pulls Jesus aside. Peter looks into the face of Christ, sees the truth, and in his desperation tries to take over. The Messiah comes as a savior, but he has been hoped for and imagined with earthly eyes. What could we imagine was the greatest expression of God's power on earth? Why a ruler or a king or something majestic with fire and warfare in a parade? That's all we can see. Jesus won't flip the established authority on its head, but he will transform our understanding of the expanse of God's power. What Jesus does in his life, death, and resurrection shares with us and shows us the profound expanse of God's love. That God loved us so deeply, he constrained himself to dwell among us, to speak to us, to reach out and touch us, to experience all that we experience as people, not as some divine, whimsical experiment, but to pull us resolutely and irrevocably back into relationship with him. Jesus came to reconcile us to God. The power of this is constantly lost on us, just as it was on Peter. I wonder how many times during the course of your day-to-day life you pause to say, I am wonderfully and marvelously made. I am cherished beyond understanding by God who seeks to live in relationship with me. What can I do but respond in thankfulness and joy? I put the over-under around three of us, even on really good days. We are asked, just as Peter was, not to be stumbling blocks for God's work in the world. We can be conduits of the Holy Spirit instead of spigots we turn off and on at will. We can learn how not to be terrified by the thought that following Jesus means forsaking our desires, one tiptoeing step at a time. We can slowly attune our hearts and minds to divine things, to love and reconciliation and resurrections instead of earthly things of power and constant self-centeredness. It seems impossible. It really does. But when Jesus calls Peter a stumbling block, it means that Peter is hindering the work of God. The work of God Jesus described just a few chapters earlier as letting every person be counted that not even the little ones should be lost. We can do that. We can acknowledge and count one another. We can pay attention to the little ones in age and in our society. To lose our lives for the sake of Christ is martyrdom. And Lord knows that very few of us want to be martyred for anything other than our own desires and whims. To lose our life for Christ To set our minds not on earthly but divine things is an opportunity to change the world, thought by thought and action by action. 
To live more fully into Christ's example would mean acting for reconciliation, jubilantly experiencing resurrection of things we have long since thought dead, and to love one another as God loves us, without compunction, without restraint, with great joy and wild abandon. To explore it more concretely, please turn to page 304 in your Books of Common Prayer. I know, we're using the prayer book. It's going to be okay. (laughs) What do you find there? The baptismal covenant. And what the baptismal covenant describes are opportunities. The promises we make here are opportunities for us as Christians to live like Christ. And these prompts act for us as a skeleton for living our faith. And it is up to us to put on the muscle. The work of God is building up our muscles to see divine things, to love God, to seek and serve Christ in all persons, to continue as apostles. This is how we can begin to remove from within ourselves the stumbling blocks to God's redeeming love in the world. You don't need the prayer books anymore. You can put them up if you want. (laughs) Earlier this week, I read an article entitled, 10 More Things the Church Can't Do While Following Jesus. Apparently, 10 wasn't enough. Some of these were obvious, like be hypocritical or turn away the poor. But number four hit me in the chest and stayed with me for days. Number four on the list of 10 more things the church was narrowly define who is and who isn't a Christian. The author writes, There are times when I wonder if the church is more interested in defining who isn't a Christian than in helping people actually follow the teachings of Jesus. As organized denominations, we write books of rules defining what you can and can't do, what you should and shouldn't believe. Basically, who's in and who's out. Jesus took the opposite approach. He was more interested in showing how the old law is made new when you realize the primary law is to love everybody. He touched the untouchables and included the excluded. The author concludes, It's hard to understand how an institution that invests so much time and energy into defining who can label themselves Christian still believes it's following the guy who shared meals with tax collectors and hung out with prostitutes. It really makes no sense, so cut it out, okay? Many of us, including myself, have come to the Episcopal Church from another denomination. I came from the Church of Christ, not the United Church of Christ, the Church of Christ, which is a small denomination predominant in the South. In the Church of Christ, there are no organs, No instruments, no stained glass, no pictures, no playing of cards or dancing, and no emphasis on communion of Christians and other congregations. A single group of people in a single building held the keys to unraveling the truth about God and Jesus, and the keys to salvation. And even though there would be several churches that were part of the Church of Christ— 
We were told to be wary of one another. It was extremely autonomous. Autonomy in churches seems to be a particularly American trait. It's why you see first, second, and third Baptist churches all across town. It's not that each is part of a new and different tradition. It's that there was a fight at First Baptist, and some people left and created Second Baptist. And there was a fight there, and they left to create Third Baptist. A couple summers ago in North Carolina, I saw a sign for the new Reformed Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And I thought, well, they pulled from a lot of stacks on that one. There are 450,000 church buildings in the United States, identifying with over 250 denominations. And I will honestly tell you that there are ones that I don't think are Christian. But Lord knows I've heard the same thing about the Episcopal Church. It's gotten to the reality that all of us at some point or place are uncomfortable with the word church or the identifier Christian, and most painfully, the name of Jesus Christ. It breaks my heart to know that we don't want to identify or claim God's perfect act of redemption and love. We should be running headlong into that reality with our arms and our hearts and our minds wide open to the knowledge that losing ourselves within this mercy and grace will lead us to greener pastures, to cooler waters, and the healing of wounds left open for far too long. If Jesus Christ could transform the concept of the Messiah for all humankind as the Savior and Redeemer of the world— What marvelous things would happen if we stopped being stumbling blocks? What would happen if we let Jesus Christ transform our ideas of practicing Christianity? What if we stopped deciding who was Christian and who wasn't Christian enough, and instead focused on practicing this act of following Christ by trying to emulate him? What if these stumbling blocks that we create crumbled? I guarantee you that we will lose some parts of our lives, some parts we are holding on to far too tightly. We will lose something, but we will gain much more if we strive to be Christians who look at the divine acts of love, resurrection, redemption, and mercy. We will be continually transformed. We are all counted, even the little ones, And in becoming a support beam instead of a stumbling block to God's unfolding love and work in this world, we will know a life sweeter than we ever could have dreamed. Amen.